The Bible tells us that God is the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. In Isaiah 57 and verse 15. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11 gives us the thought that God has put eternity in our hearts. It's a part of our natural makeup to be fascinated with that which is transcendent, that which is above the natural, because we were made by the one who inhabits eternity for a relationship with him. That inclination has been damaged by the fall, of course, but it is nevertheless there. The mystery of God's majesty is often overwhelming, sometimes uh, even frightening, but also it strangely draws us. Sometimes when God meets that inclination in us in a personal way and shows us something of what He is really like, when He, as it were, opens our eyes and allows us to see the depths of the mystery of His majesty and His glory, it's far more startling than an overwhelming story. The real, genuine experience of God's self-revelation may even shock us, may even terrify us, even shake us to the core of our being. And then it leaves us changed forever. This morning we come to just that kind of story. It confronts us with the realization that we are in the presence of someone who is greater and more otherworldly than we realize. And it's meant by God to so impact us with the mystery of the glorious majesty of Jesus Christ that we are changed forever. Again, we want to start this morning in chapter 17 and look at the story together. We find that Jesus gave a startling, shocking soul-trembling, life-transforming manifestation of His own kingdom glory to His beloved friends. Look at Matthew chapter 17. We'll begin reading there in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain, and was transfigured before them, and His face did shine as the sun, and His raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with them. And then he answered Peter and said, said unto, and then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man, save Jesus only, And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. First of all, I'd like to consider the context of this story. The context. And so we need to go back to chapter 16 and verse 28 and read there that it says, Verily I say unto you, there shall be some standing here, which shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. 
And so you find the context expressed here in chapter 16. Now the first thing we need to know about this verse, that it's not in the wrong chapter, or we could say it is in the wrong chapter. Uh, The text of the Bible, of course, is the very Word of God, and yet the chapter divisions are not inspired. Men, human editors, publishers, separated the text into chapters and verses. And so we could find out where we're, we're supposed to be reading, or where we're studying. But in this case, I think the chapter division gives us the impression that it does probably belong in chapter 17. But let me just show you here why this is so. Think back with me once again to the things we've already seen the past few weeks. First, we've seen Jesus was clearly identified for us in the confession that Peter made concerning him. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 16 of chapter 16. And we called that the blessed confession because immediately received, uh, it received Jesus' blessing after he said it. We're also told that it was a rev- revelation from God the Father concerning his Son. In fact, we even read in our passage this morning that the Father himself again will express this. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And then we read that this same Jesus who is declared to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, must go to Jerusalem and die on the cross. In verse 21, we read, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. And so it was the set purpose of God the Father, that Jesus, His own beloved Son, must die on the cross for sinners. And you may remember that Peter did not accept that. He even dared to take Jesus, uh, his Savior, aside and rebuke Him for saying that. But Jesus affirmed that He would not be drawn away from the cross. And then we read again where Jesus turned to His disciples and told them, Then Jesus said unto His disciples, If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and follow Me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for My sake shall find it. For what is man profited if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels... And then he shall reward every man according to his works. And I read that again just to remind us of what we looked at. And also it's part of your memory work, so you probably could read it along with me. But uh, let's just put it all together. Here's Jesus affirmed to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is God in the human flesh. He's destined to be revealed as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but he must first suffer for sinners and die on the cross. And he insists that anyone who would come after him must do so as he is about to do. Deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. They are to be willing to do so, trusting the Son of Man will come to this earth again one day in the glory of his Father and will reward each according to their works. And then comes the strange verse here, one in which he speaks a truth that is seldom and, uh, a solemn and serious. 
He says, verily, verse 28, or literally, the word is amen, amen. He says, verily, truly, so let it be. I say unto you, there be some standing here. Well, that is the some among whom the twelve disciples, who had just been called upon to deny self, take up their cross and to follow him which shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And I think the simplest way to understand this verse then is as a promise from the Lord Jesus to His disciples of that remarkable, remarkable event that Matthew tells about in the text there in chapter 17. Some of the disciples standing there, some, in fact three of them, to be precise, would be taken aside, would be given a private glimpse of the glory of the one who was calling them to follow him by the way of the cross. They would be given a vision of his kingly majesty before they themselves left this earth so that they could testify to his glory as eyewitnesses. And they could then pass on the assurance of his kingly reign to those of us who are yet alive and who would also hear the call to follow Him. Maybe even to lay down our lives for Him. Well, as it turns out, this promise from the Lord was fulfilled only six days after it was given. And the preview of the majesty, uh, majestic glory of King Jesus in which He would one day come to this earth and reign was given to these witnesses who would then pass it on to us. And so that leads us next to consider the eyewitnesses present. Verse 1 of chapter 17 says, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. Now it may surprise you to know this, but Jesus didn't treat all twelve disciples equally. Among the twelve, he had a special relationship with these three. They were with him at some of the most important moments of his earthly ministry. Perhaps you remember, for example, the time that Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. The man's little girl had died, and when Jesus arrived to the house with his disciples, it says in Luke 8 and verse 51, And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John, and then the father and the mother of the maiden. So they alone at that time were the witnesses of His resurrection power. Or perhaps you remember the dark night of the Lord's betrayal. Matthew 26, 36-37 says, Then cometh Jesus unto them into a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And He took with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And so once again, we find these three in close relationship or companionship with the Savior at some of the most crucial moments in His ministry. And it was to them that He chose to reveal His glory. Now why three? Well, perhaps it was so that, as the Scriptures say, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Could be. We find that in a number of places throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament and New. But why these three? 
Well, perhaps we can't entirely know the reason for the Lord's choice, but the Lord clearly knew who it was that He could trust to serve as eyewitnesses and faithful reporters of this remarkable event. And the past 2,000 years or so of church's testimony through their written witness has proven that the choice was very providential and was very wise. And so Jesus took them apart from the others and he led them up the high mountain by themselves he didn't wish to give them this this revelation to just everyone or anyone but just to them he didn't do it publicly but he did it in solitude luke tells us in his account of this story that he went up there to pray but luke also tells us that the three that went with him were weary with sleep and so it must have been at night So imagine this scene. It's dark. It's quiet. They're way up on a ridge of a mountain, and the evening has fallen, and no doubt the trees and the tall rocks created kind of an envelope of darkness around them, and they were far away from anyone else. There's hardly a sound. Maybe the Lord was praying, and the disciples were probably sleeping. And then the vision came. And that leads to the scene witnessed. Verse 2, chapter 17. And was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with them. And here we see the glory of of God on display. Matthew tells us that he was transfigured before them. His eternal form was changed. We're not told very much about this, and perhaps it's best that we're not. But we are told that what God wanted us to know. We're told that the Lord's face did shine as the sun. Verse 2. Now can you imagine what that must have been like during the dark night in that secluded secluded place. Were the disciples awakened by the brightness? Did they think at first that they had overslept and that daylight had fallen upon them? Did they have to hold their hands to their eyes to shield themselves from the brightness? Well, the Bible tells us that long ago Moses' face shone. We're told that when he came down from Mount Sinai from the presence of God with the law in his hands, that Moses wist not that his skin of his face shone while he talked with them. Aaron and the children of Israel saw it, but were afraid to approach near Moses because of it. But it also tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 7, the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. Moses' face shone with the glory of God, but it faded away because it was only reflected light. Moses, if I may put it this way, was kind of like the moon. He was just reflecting the light of God. And the light which shines is only a reflected light borrowed from the sun. But here, we're told that Jesus' face radiated, not from being in the presence of God, Because he truly was God. He was not a mere reflected light, but he was like the sun itself in brightness and strength. This again is stressed in the resurrection glory of Jesus when we read about it in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16. 
His countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. We're also told that the Lord's raiment was white as light. Mark in his gospel tells us that his garments became exceedingly white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. By the way, you know what a fuller is? It's a cleaners. It's like we would call it a laundromat or a dry cleaners today. It's where you go get your clothes, uh, clothes uh, cleaned and pressed. And so here this uh, light was so white that it was whiter than any, any uh, laundromat could ever get your clothes. In Revelation 19 and verse 14 we read about the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Perhaps this is meant to convey to us the unspeakable purity and holiness of our Lord in his glory. Well, it's hard to grasp, I think, what a stunning and shocking sight this must have been. And that's not all that the three disciples saw, because Matthew also tells us here in verse 3, And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, talking with him. Now, there's a question that preachers are sometimes asked. I think I've probably been asked this at some time or another. Will we recognize our loved ones in heaven? I've always thought, well, you recognize them now, don't you? (laughs) Aren't you going to be smarter in heaven than you are now? But if anyone needed scriptural proof, I think this is the place to find it. How did the disciples know that this was Moses and Elijah? They hadn't seen pictures of them. There were no pictures at that time. There were no uh, uh, ways of, of knowing how they looked. Jesus didn't make any introductions. He just didn't say, well, fellas, this is Moses here and this is Elijah. No introductions are recorded for us. They certainly weren't wearing name tags. But as these two Old Testament saints appeared to them in glory with the Lord, the disciples simply knew who they were. I have no doubt that we'll know our loved ones when we get to heaven. But stop and think of who it was that that spoke with the Lord. Moses, the great Old Testament giver of the law. And Elijah, among the greatest, the Old Testament prophets. And I suggest that their presence with the Lord was symbolic of how Jesus himself is subject of the two great divisions of the Old Testament scriptures, that is, the law and the prophets. Jesus spoke to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. It says there, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24, 27. And what's more, Luke in his gospel tells us what it was that they were talking about. They were talking about Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. And so you have Moses and Elijah, the representatives of the law and the prophets. They appeared and spoke with the Lord concerning the work for us that he was about to accomplish on the cross. Jesus once taught about himself. He said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. 
For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And what a revelation this was of our Lord in His glory. He's what Peter said He was. The Christ, the Son of the living God, God walked on this earth in human flesh. The man who died on the cross is the theme of the Scriptures. And here on this mysterious and wondrous night, He peeled back the flesh of His humility to reveal the splendor and the glory of His deity to His friends. And so then we want to notice the reaction to the scene. Verses 4 through 6. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. You know, as you read the Bible... One of the things you notice is that Peter is usually the first one to step out. And here he says, let's make three tabernacles. Boy, this is so great. We need to put some memorial here. Let's make these three tabernacles. Now, whether it was a good idea or not, Peter would suggest it. As he beheld the glory of the Lord on display and he saw Moses and Elijah in glory walking with him, about his coming and talking with him about his coming sacrifice, Peter was overwhelmed. He said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Well, what an understatement. He said, If thou wilt, let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses, one for Elias. And when Luke told the story, he added that Peter said these things. Uh, he said, not knowing what he said. You know how you say something and I didn't think before I said it. Well, Luke kind of tells us that Peter said, not knowing what he said. And so I want us to look at Peter's response here. First, Peter responds. And I want you to know that Peter is correct in his response. He was right to say that it was good to be there. It certainly was. Jesus' glory was on display. Moses and Elijah came and spoke to him. Peter, James, and John were in the very privileged place. It's understandable that Peter would think to put some tabernacles up and want to stay and stick around and just enjoy the time. But once again, Peter was missing the point. Jesus was not going to stay on the mountaintop, as wonderful as an experience as it was, and in put his glory on display in this way, he was still committed to his Father's purpose for him the very purpose about which Moses and Elijah had come to speak with him. And there was this decease that they were talking about, and he was about to accomplish. He still needed to go to the cross. Yes, Peter was correct on the one hand. It was great to be there. But he was also wrong. He erred terribly in wishing to build three tabernacles. One for the Lord Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He erred in placing them all on equal standing. If anything, Peter, James, and John, Moses, and Elijah, all five, should have built a tabernacle for Jesus. Those glorified Old Testament saints were simply the servants in the house. 
But Jesus was the master. The apostles and the prophets were the foundation, but Jesus was the chief cornerstone. So I think there are some spiritual lessons that we can learn here. First of all, glory on earth is not forever. We may wish to linger in the moments of glory. We may wish to build tabernacles on mountaintops. We may wish to say this is a most wondrous time. This is a most wonderful uh, 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 moment that we should never leave or forget. But you know what? We can't. Because really that's not the Father's purpose. It was enough that Jesus' glory be revealed, and that assures us that we will share in that eternal glory with Him forever. But for now, so long as we walk on this earth, we need to come down from the mountaintops, and we need to come and take the truth of Jesus to the world, the world of hurting people. You may have had a time in your life, in your Christian life, when everything was... Great. Maybe it was a revival service. Maybe it was a church service. Maybe it was a, a time in your devotions at home and you say, man, this, the Lord really spoke to my heart. And I wish I could just stay here forever. But He doesn't want you to stay there forever. He wants you to take that experience and go and come down from the mountain and go to people who are hurting. Glory on this earth is not forever. Secondly, temporary glory foreshadows eternal glory. The glory of Jesus at that time was so wonderful and even frightening that the disciples would have rather left everything behind and stayed there for as long as they could. And if such temporal display of glory of Jesus was so wonderful, then just think of what heaven might be like. If the temporary glory was so wonderful, think how great heaven's glory will be. There we'll see it on full display forever. And then thirdly, the glory of Jesus is unique. We need to remember in all this that Jesus is being put on display here, and that's very unique. He does not share status with anyone, not even the greatest saints, such as Moses or Elijah. They were great messengers for God. Their message was about Jesus Christ, and it's Him, not His servants, that should receive our attention and our worship. And that last point is made very clear to us in what happens next. We're told here in verse 5 that while Peter was still speaking these words, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And this was no ordinary cloud. This was a bright cloud, and it seemed to encompass them as if it were to silence them and to place a holy veil over the things that they were, uh, were then seeing. And can you imagine, given all the things that just occurred, perhaps what frightening time this would have been. It's hard not to see in this cloud a reminder of the glorious cloud, the Shekinah glory that covered Mount Sinai at the giving of the law, or that later filled the tabernacle in the wilderness, or the temple in Jerusalem. But now as the glory of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, is being revealed, the cloud once again comes as a covering. It's in the midst of this cloud that God the Father spoke. The voice of the Father rumbled from within the cloud to these three trembling disciples saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. As a result, the disciples spoke no more. 
They fell on their faces and they were very, very afraid. You know, this is the second time in the Gospel of Matthew that we're told that the voice of the Father spoke. The first time was at Jesus' baptism. And at that time, he said essentially the same thing. He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But notice a difference here. Here he stresses the command. Hear ye him. The Father speaking from the cloud says that the very thing that Peter confessed, the very confession that Peter was told didn't come from flesh and blood, but had been revealed to him by the Father himself, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And before everyone else, before every other human teacher or preacher, even before Moses and Elijah themselves, we must let Jesus Christ be heard. The Father was pointing out Jesus, and He said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. If only people who scramble around the world and claim that they're seeking the truth would learn from this story. The search would be over. And so consider what has happened. The awesome kingly majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ was put on display. Select men were given a preview of His majesty that Moses and Elijah appeared with Him in glory and spoke with Him about His upcoming sacrifice. And a bright cloud, the very Shekinah glory of old, covered the scene. And along with the glory of God, we see the greatness of God as well. And the voice of the Father in heaven announced Him to these three witnesses. And that's when we see Number five, the responsibility given. We've seen the response and how, but now we notice their responsibility. What were they to do with what they saw? Verse seven says, And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted their eyes and they saw no man save Jesus only, and they, As they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen from the dead. These disciples were cowering in fear. And yet, in their fear, because of the glory and the greatness of God, we see the grace of God. The grace of God. When it was over, Jesus came and He touched them and displayed great gentleness and grace to them. He told them, Arise and be not afraid. He he wasn't there to cause them more terror. They had seen what they had needed to see and they heard what they needed to hear. It was all over now. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Him. Moses was gone. Elijah was gone. The cloud was gone. The voice of the Father was gone. All they saw was Jesus. And with the words of the Father, hear ye Him, still echoing in their ears. And it's then that Jesus leads them down the mountain and He leads them back to the crowds below and He gives them a very strict command. He tells them, tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Again, most likely they didn't understand. Mark tells us that they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And I suspect the reason Jesus commanded them to tell no one until after His resurrection was the same reason He commanded them to keep silent about Him after they had affirmed Him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, back in chapter 16 and verse 20. His divine destiny, His purpose from the Father still remained the same, 
And though his glory had been displayed, he must still need go to Jerusalem. He must suffer at the hands of unjust men. He must die on the cross for our sins. And what meekness our Savior displays in this. He possessed such power, such glory, as it was displayed on the mountain, and yet he hid it and willingly went to the cross for us. What a strange and frightening story this, this was, an event in these three men's lives. But every word is true. Everything that we just read happened, just as it was reported to us. It's one of those strange, mysterious stories that is meant to take us up beyond ourselves and kind of give us an encounter with the transcendent power of God. It's meant to really shake us down to the core, perhaps even to give us some goosebumps. I don't know. We meant, it's meant, though, to cause us to really contemplate and to think about what these three men saw. It's meant to change us. It's meant to inspire us with an overwhelming sense that Jesus Christ is everything He said He was and that we can invest our eternal destiny in Him. It's meant to remind us that He truly will come in the glory of His Father and with His angels and reward each according to His works. It's meant to teach us that we can safely deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. And at least that's the conclusion Peter himself came to. We need to come to the same conclusion that Peter did. Many years after this event, just before he laid down his own life as a martyr for the Lord Jesus, Peter sought to urge his fellow Christians to keep following Jesus. He sought to remind them of the things that they had been taught. We read in 1 Peter or 2 Peter chapter 1, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were, notice here, eyewitnesses of His majesty. For we, He received from, the God, from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to Him from this, the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He goes on to say, And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well, that ye take heed as unto the light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. You might say, wow, that was probably one of the most wonderful experiences that these three men had. I wish I could have been there. That would have been neat to see. Yes, it was great. Maybe some of you like to be frightened. I don't know. This was one of those times when you would have said, Woo, that got me. But notice here what Peter says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We have a more sure word of prophecy. More important than seeing Jesus, Moses, and Elijah Lit up on a mountain is the book you hold in your hands this morning. What is that more sure word? You hold it in your hands. And Peter says, we would do well to take heed to it. 
me ask you this morning, are you taking heed to that more sure word of prophecy? Yes, we think that would have been great and it would have been wonderful to see. But we have something more wonderful right here in our hands. Let's bow in prayer.